Today we are starting a new series. I have spent quite a bit of time on this case because I wanted to answer just one simple question. Was the Torch Slayer a serial killer? And you may be asking yourself who even is the Torch Slayer, or if you do know who he is, you know of his one victim. But I have always believed in this case there were more victims. The basic definition of a serial killer is someone who commits a series of murders, often with no apparent motive, and typically follows a predictable behavior pattern. What I hope to do in this podcast is provide you with the most complete view of this case ever put together. This is the very first time that anyone has ever done this deep of a dive on this case, and I hope I've done it justice. This story first takes place in February of 1928. A woman named Margaret Brown is getting ready to start a new chapter of her life. Little does she know, it's her final chapter. One, two, three, and... Hello everyone and welcome to what is officially known as Season 2 of Forgotten True Crime. The podcast where we investigate true crime cases forgotten through time. We examine each case independently of other people's opinions. We search out prime sources through police records, witness statements, news reports, and so much more. Please subscribe to the podcast so that you will be the first to know when we have new episodes. You can also check out our webpage at truecrime.blog. That's where we post each of these stories. And we also post a lot of the reports and things that we gathered for each case there as well. We have a Facebook page and a YouTube page as well. You can find us under Forgotten True Crime. Love can make a person do strange things. It blinds you to the obvious, like deceit, lies, and even danger. Unfortunately for some, missing these warning signs can mean placing yourself in a perilous situation. On February 21st, 1928, Inal Campbell was driving home in the early morning hours after a late morning out in Morristown, New Jersey, with his wife and his neighbor, James Murdoch. Morristown was a nice and quiet community, so it was a surprise to everyone in the car when they saw something burning in the distance in the Morristown Bernardsville Highway, and now thought it might be one of those roadside stands that vendors would set up and leave overnight. The flames were large enough that they thought it would be best to stop and see if they could assist in putting it out. It was near a gas station and they just did not want to think about the possibility if it too caught on fire. As they approached, they discovered the fire was indeed behind a roadside stand 
and it was very, very close to the gas station. The fire appeared to be on the ground, which was weird since fresh snow blanketed the city. And now and James got out of the car and they approached the fire and were shocked to find in the middle of this fire was actually a person engulfed in the flames. They tried to put the fire out, but nothing they did seemed to work. Finally, the two men started taking the snow and they were dousing the fire by covering the body completely with snow. Now, and now could smell gasoline and then realize that the person they found was just soaked in it. Just as James began saying that this was a horrible way for someone to die, the body of the charred person began to move and struggled to breathe. Both men realized this poor person was still alive. It was then a police car pulled up. The chief of police, Kavanaugh, was alerted by a passerby about the fire. He was the first official to the scene, and the chief approached the two men who were putting the fire out. They told him about what they had come across and that the person was still alive. Acting quickly, the three men brought the body to the police car and loaded it in the back seat and now got into his car and followed along. And James actually got in the back of the police car with this injured person. It was then he realized that the charred person was a woman. They pulled back onto the road and, and now drove as fast as he could on the ice-covered roads. The nearest hospital was not too far away, but to everyone's horror, the woman began to burst into flames that spread quickly over the clothes of her body. Chief Kavanaugh was forced to pull over and they pulled the woman out of the car they once again put her out with the snow, and the flames were then again extinguished. They quickly put her back in the car, and now James realized she did not seem to be breathing anymore. When they reached the hospital, the staff tried to do what they could for the woman, but it was just too late. They pronounced her dead at 3 a.m ending this woman's final chapter in life, but marking the beginning of a wild murder investigation. The investigation was headed up by Chief Charles Cavanaugh and County Prosecutor Francis Burgeon. The unidentified woman's body was now in the hands of Coroner R.D. Totten. They first wanted to establish whether this woman had done this to herself or not. There was no mistaking what caused the fire. She was soaked in gasoline. The smell was potent. As Totten examined the body, he found nothing obvious that pointed out that she was injured before the fire. He also noted that she left some jewelry on, including a 24 karat gold watch. Her clothing was not cheap. She had a silk skin coat on, 
that looked like a custom order from a well-known fur, Thomas Lewis, and was marked Lewis from Buffalo. The thing that looked very odd on the woman's body was that it didn't appear that she tried to put herself out or protect herself from harm in any way. Even if you had done this to yourself on purpose, you would be in such extreme pain you would react to the flames. It looked like she didn't move at all after the fire started. Her right arm was very charred, along with her legs, almost to the bone. The other side was virtually untouched. Thinking she had been drugged or something along those lines, Totten ordered that she have an autopsy done. He contacted the Somerville Hospital and set up an appointment with the county physician George L. Mack in hopes that he could provide some more answers. The detectives took the items that may help identify the woman and began getting the word out about what had happened. The first step was to alert the local news of the incident. The report itself may provide identification quicker than their own legwork. The second thing they did was that they had officers in Buffalo, New York visit Thomas Lewis, who had created that custom sealskin coat. They hoped he could shed some light on the woman's identity by describing the tailored coat and the woman. It actually did not take very long for officers to contact Thomas Lewis. Uh, he was very welcoming and brought the officers in to his shop. They described the coat to him, but he could provide little information on who the woman may be. He had sold several coats like it, and the vague description of the woman was really no help. But Thomas had a well-organized list of clients who lived in the area. He gave the officers the name of his clients who lived in New Jersey in hopes that one of them might be able to help identify this woman. Chief Charles Cavanaugh and County Prosecutor Francis Burgeon searched for clues at the crime scene. Although this was a horrible thing that had happened, they did not know if this woman was murdered or if this was something she had done to herself. The chief knew that the coroner's theory was that she was probably not conscious when she was set on fire, but now they were looking for evidence that supported that theory. Near where she was found, there was a small gas station. That station had been closed at the time, and there was no way she would have been able to get gas from the pump. There was nothing around like matches or a lighter or any kind of container that held gas in the area. But what they did find were tire tracks leading up to the spot where she had been left. It looked like someone had simply pulled behind the building, then pulled her out of the car, and then set her on fire. Over the next 24 hours, police began to run down leads, look for witnesses, and continued to try to identify this poor woman. As all of this was happening, the newspapers ran the story as front page news. 
It was through these news articles they received their first big tip. Possible identification. Miss Mary Brown, who resided in Fort Lee, New Jersey, was worried about her aunt Margaret Brown. She was supposed to be going on a trip, but she had dropped all contact with the family after she had lunch with her sister-in-law. The woman that Aunt Margaret worked for had called and asked if they heard from Margaret recently. When Mary told her that she had not, the employer told Mary about the woman found dead in the paper and how the detailed description reminded her of Margaret. All of this worried Mary, but the thing that worried her the most was she knew that Margaret was carrying around quite a bit of money. When she had lunch with her sister-in-law, Margaret said that she had withdrawn $9,000 from her bank account, which in 1928 was the equivalent of having over $150,000. So Mary Brown phoned the police and talked to Detective Fred Roth, who was currently working on the case. They went over identifying marks that were known to have been on Margaret Brown. And one such mark was a surgery scar she had on her torso. Detective Roth checked the body. And sure enough, there was a surgery scar just as described. The detective described the clothing that the victim had on. Each article was confirmed to have been something Margaret had owned. So the detective asked if Mary would be willing to come down to the station and make a formal identification. Even though they were pretty sure that the woman had now been identified, they still needed to make sure that this was indeed Margaret Brown. Mary agreed to come down the next day by police escort. Before hanging up, Detective Roth asked what it was that Margaret did for a living. Mary told the detective that Margaret was a woman of means. She had money, but wanted to work for something to do with her life. She had obtained a job as a governess and was working for the Galipsi family. She had been employed with them for nine months. Detectives discovered that the Galipsis, who Margaret worked for, were very wealthy. They lived in New York and on Park Avenue. Working as a governess for them meant receiving many of the perks of living wealthy. When interviewed, Mr. and Mrs. Galipsy stated that Margaret liked going to Central Park in her free time. They believed that she had met someone and was planning to go away with him soon. From what Margaret had told the family, she was planning on going to California. All of this was news to the detectives. They had heard from the family that she was planning on going to Florida, but not California. The day prior, Margaret had left their employment under excellent terms to pursue a life of her own. So the detectives asked about the amount of money Margaret had on her when she left their employment. The Glipsies told the detectives that they were not really quite sure how much money she had, 
But when they told the Glipsies they believed that she had $8,000 at the time of her death, the Glipsies seemed genuinely shocked that she would be carrying around that much money. Miss Glipsy told the detectives that she had talked to a man who came to see her. Uh, she believed him to be a doctor, and his name was Dr. Huff or Hoff. Detectives were also told that when Margaret Brown left her employment, she took a large trunk with her, something that was not with her now. She had received mail several times at her place of employment, and as far as they knew, she never threw those letters away or burned them, which was a common practice at the time. As the news broke that named Margaret Brown as the possible victim, reports began to filter in about Margaret and what may have happened to her. While she lived in New York and in the employment of the Glipsies, Margaret was seen several times talking to a man around Central Park. He was described as a little younger and seemed quite taken with Margaret. But because of her private nature, no one knew his name. And they only had a vague description of him and of the car that he drove. What they were able to piece together was that they believed he drove a blue sedan. A blue sedan was also reported to have been seen in the area the night of the fire. With little to go on, detectives returned to search for this blue sedan or even Dr. Huff or Hoff. On the next day, a letter arrived at the police station through the morning post. The clerk believed it was just an ordinary letter and opened it. Two $1,000 bonds fell out onto the desk, along with a full confession letter. The letter read, I am writing you this letter and sending you these bonds of Miss Brown, knowing you will take care of them before anyone else gets them. I am very remorseful. I had been drinking. I met Miss Brown in Buffalo and then again in New York at 4.15 on Monday and reached New York at 7.15. I met Miss Brown. I had two bottles of wine and we both drank some. I drove out to Lover's Lane where there was a large car parked. I drove around until the car had gone and then I pulled up there. I tried to take advantage of her, but she refused. I'd hit her on the head and she fell, thinking I had killed her. I took gasoline from my car and I poured it over, lighting it, and then drove away. I drove through Bernardsville, where I threw the rest of the stuff in the river, as this was all the money she had and I drove around and slept in the car for the rest of the night. I drove to Newark on the next morning where I am in hiding. I have a good car and new tires, and I am signing out. God knows where to hell, I suppose. By the time you get this letter, I shall have got a good start on you. I am going to go until my money gives out, and then when I'm caught, 
I have something with me to end it all before they can do anything. The clerk rushed this letter to the detectives. This might contain a clue that they need to break this case. A confession letter came in from someone claiming to be the killer. This person returned the money he took from Margaret Brown and warned that he was now on the run and would kill himself if he were caught. Now, after receiving the letter, they were actually able to examine it some, and some of the detectives actually believed that this letter wasn't just very well written. Uh, it was hard to believe that someone who was highly educated would have written this letter. But as they interviewed those who knew the victim, they were told that Margaret was indeed seeing a doctor from New York. Although for whatever reason, no one really knew the doctor's name except for one friend and fellow governess, Miss Elizabeth Emily Miller. Miss Miller not only knew the name of the doctor, but she had seen him as well. She actually saw him in passing and knew what he vaguely kind of looked like. Miss Miller told the detectives that the man they were looking for was Dr. Louis Clement. He resided and practiced in New York, and he met Margaret through personals in the paper. They had fallen in love, and they planned on getting married. This was interesting to the police because this is something they did not publish in the confession letter. They actually held that back. The killer actually stated that not only were they lovers, but they were going to be married. And the reason he actually killed Margaret was that she no longer wanted to get married. So this was something that was not common knowledge. Now, this information came just days after the murder happened. And keep in mind, this is also days after not having any actual solid leads. And this is front page news from across the country. So when officers and detectives got a name of the person they thought might have caused the murder, they let part of that information leak to the press. Detectives in New Jersey contacted officers in New York and informed them of the information that they received. The New York officials began to quickly look into Dr. Clement. The first place they checked was his home. But when they arrived, they found that not only was Dr. Clement not living there, they also found out that the doctor was not exactly single because staying in the home was his wife who had thrown him out. Dr. Clement was a married man. Detectives sat down with Miss Teresa Flower Van Norden, the doctor's wife, and explained the situation. What she told detectives was that she and Dr. Clement had been married after six months of dating. After they had married, the doctor decided to steal a diamond brooch that she had owned that was worth over $600. After he stole it, she had not seen him since. When the detectives told her why they were looking for her husband, she told them that they had the wrong guy, 
he was a thief, but she didn't believe him to be a killer. But she did tell them where she believed he could be found. He may be staying at one of these several hotels downtown, but she really didn't know what he had been doing for work all of this time. Despite what they were told, detectives in New York stationed themselves in local hotels and in areas where they were told that Dr. Clement actually had frequented. They also let it slip to the press that they were on the verge of catching the killer. Officers said that they were watching the killer and waiting to just make their move. The truth was they had no idea where he really was. They only thought that he would just turn up at some point. As each hour went by, they started feeling the weight of their statements returning to haunt them. You see, this information that was leaked to the press ended up being front page news. It reassured the public that, hey, we know that this guy's a killer. We're watching him. We got eyes on him. It's all okay. But the newspapers aren't stupid. And after about 24 hours of this, it becomes pretty evident that they don't have this guy. They don't know where he is at all. This also frustrates many of the newspapers because now they have published something that reassures the public that everything's okay, when in reality, it's not. This also frustrated officers from both New Jersey and New York. Many didn't believe that they should have given such a statement to the press and that it created this false sense of security in the public. The fact was that if Dr. Clement was the killer and he wanted to kill again, no one was watching him to stop him. Furthermore, they were also going off of one person's statement that he was indeed the person who was seeing Margaret. They had no other evidence besides that one statement. Despite their frustrations, on February 24th, 1928, detectives in New Jersey started telling the press that the killer was a drug fiend. They based this on the information that he had stolen the diamond brooch from his wife. Their thinking was that he would only do that because he wanted to sell it and trade it for drugs. They also let it be known that when the killer was caught, everyone would be shocked when they found out who this individual was. In my opinion, this was a careless tactic, but it was the type of thing that you might expect between two state police forces who were not working well with each other. In New Jersey and New York, this free-flowing information was always making its way to the press. Officers and detectives commonly fed the press with information because those news articles sometimes help solve the crimes or help you find a killer or a suspect. The newspapers may have been offering rewards for information as well to detectives and police just to kind of feed them information. So there might have been some money to be made by passing out information. Everyone in the newspaper business wanted that scoop first. It was also during this time that police were starting to run down every lead that had come their way. 
They were desperate to get this case solved. They would take any information they could get to get this done. A man in New Jersey where the murder took place had actually committed suicide, which caused the authorities to actually investigate if he was the killer or not. In the confession letter, the killer had threatened to end things before he got caught. But when they looked into the man's life, they knew that he just had nothing to do with it. And they're thinking this was actually a pretty big worry because now you have a person that says that, yes, I am suicidal. And if you catch me or if you're about to catch me, I'm going to end things. And here you have the press printing all of this information saying that he's being watched and he is like arrest is intimate, like it's coming. So, yeah, this was a pretty big worry that he might commit suicide. On May 1st, now this is just eight days after the murder, the detectives decided to take the suspect's name to the news media. They had lost his trail, and after days of trying to find him, they were just running out of leads. The fact of the matter was that they were spending all of their time looking for this one person, and they were just not sure if he had anything to do with this murder or not. But the more time they spent running down this one lead, the more they got this tunnel vision and lost sight of all other possible leads. So by the end of the day, Dr. Louis Clement was plastered on the front of every major newspaper in the Northeast United States. When the nation read about Dr. Clement, information about him started to spill in about his personal life and dealings in the past. Nothing painted him in a very positive light. He once swindled two old women out of thousands of dollars when he promised them that he was developing a new type of fuel, something that was going to change the world, he said. They invested in this idea, and he took their money and ran. The fact that he actually was trying to develop a new fuel source was also a point of interest not only for detectives, but for the press as well. You have somebody that's obsessed with developing a new type of fuel, and then you have a killer that poured fuel all over a victim and lit them on fire. This was too hard to ignore to be just a coincidence, basically. As the days went on, the police and public continued searching for the doctor. He was reported to have been spotted all over the country, and was instantly everywhere and nowhere all at once. Detectives continued to zero in on the doctor as their primary suspect. They actually took the written confession letter and compared it to other known letters that Dr. Clement had written. It was the opinion of the detectives that the two letters were written by the same person. This was damning evidence and was the first thing physically that they possessed that linked the doctor to the killer. On March 5th, a new letter arrived at the police station. This one was addressed by Dr. Louis Clement. 
The letter was mailed two days earlier on Saturday, March 3rd. The letter says that he had been making no effort to avoid the police and that he would have visited the police headquarters, but for the fact that he was penniless and could not afford to retain anyone to represent him or protect his interests. He went on to state that he had no car, he didn't even know how to drive if he had one. And he also explained that on Sunday, February 20th, he had dinner with friends here in the city, and if the authorities have not found the address of his friends prior to the receipt of this letter, he said that he would be glad to furnish his name and address and stated that he could provide proof that he was not out of New York since Thanksgiving Day in 1927, just a year earlier. If the contents of this letter were true, it would mean that the doctor had fallen on hard times and had nothing to do with the murder in the first place. This would mean that they had been searching for this single person with no other suspect in sight for, well, weeks. And if he was not the killer, then they'd gone down a road where there was really no coming back from. On March 6th, just a day later after the letter showed up, a man walked into the New York City police station and told the clerk that he wanted to speak to whoever was in charge. The clerk asked who the man was, and he told them he would not give up his identity to just anyone, except for the person who was in charge. So the clerk went and retrieved the department chief who too asked the man for his name. He stated that he was Dr. Clement, the man they were looking for. At once, the chief recognized him. Dr. Clement, from the photos that they had, was a heftier man, and the man before him had lost quite a bit of weight. But when you compared him to the photo, it was obviously him. The chief brought Dr. Clement to an interrogation room, and they started questioning him about his possible involvement in the murder. The questioning went on for hours and hours. Dr. Clement was steadfast in his stance that he had nothing to do with the murder and that he didn't know the victim. Dr. Clement actually worked in a restaurant in New York, and on the day in question, he worked late and was not only seen by his co-workers, but by the many customers as well. He also spent time with friends that day, so the distance from his work to the murder scene was just too far away. There was no way the doctor could have been at both places at the same time. So falling back to their original witness, Miss Elizabeth Emily Miller, they showed her a photo of how Dr. Clement actually looks like now. And when she saw the photo, she dismissed it almost immediately. Miss Miller said that there was no way this was the person that Margaret was seeing and was definitely not the person that she saw Margaret with that day. She saw them together. The person she saw said he was Dr. Clement. But obviously, this man was not telling the truth. Dr. Clement was arrested on this day, but it was not for murder. 
He was charged for the diamond brooch that he stole from his wife. She valued it at about $600, but Dr. Clement said it was worth much less than that. He actually said that he got just about 25 bucks for it at the pawn shop. Because there was little else to follow up on, all other leads came up cold. Because of her private nature, Margaret didn't give much insight to her private life and made it very hard for anyone to identify who the man she was seeing actually was. There were reports that he was a younger man or an older man. Many of the reports stated that he was thin, but I'm not blaming the victim here in any way for her own death. I'm just saying that this made things a little bit harder for the investigation. It's not uncommon for police in this era to get tunnel vision and ignore everything except for just this one lead. This is something that detectives and police train today to prevent. But in this case, this was a perfect storm that offset the investigation no matter what. It was odd to the police that the doctor had seemingly disappeared when they went looking for him, but they just didn't take into account that he was just another person who had fallen on hard times and was just trying to make ends meet. In the days and weeks that went by, the news of Margaret Brown and the investigation to her death went on the wayside. New investigations that had not gotten cold ended up taking precedence, and her murder was little mentioned again in the newspapers. Until that is, another murder took place. One that is on almost the first anniversary of Margaret Brown's murder. Another murder that is practically identical to Margaret Brown's murder. In New Jersey, a woman is killed and burned in the snow. This time, police are hot on his trail. Will the killer get away with this again? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so when we have new episodes, you will be the first to know. I will see you all for part three of the Torch Slayer. See ya.